BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's Friday, March 7th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. I also wanted to let you know that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And exclusively for listeners to this episode, Audible has a great offer. They're going to give you a free audiobook. You just have to go to this specific URL to get it, audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds, so please avail yourself of this opportunity. So this week, I spoke to a great science journalist, Jennifer Willette, who has a new book out about the science of, quite literally, who we are. It's called Me, Myself, and Why, Searching for the Science of Self. And in it, Willette explores what she can find out from genetics, from neuroscience, from personality research about her own self, and at the same time, she takes on the question of what the self itself, if you will, what the self itself actually is, because from the perspective of modern science, it turns out that the key question here might not simply be who we are, but also if we are at all, if the self is really a thing that can be defined as continuous and constant over time. Uh, and that's a really, really broad question and a very difficult one. So here's a clip from our interview. We all have many, many layers to the self, and that was one of the biggest challenges, I think, in writing this book. How do you define self? And it really is an onion. And so what I kind of did was kind of peel back the layers and kind of broke it down into little bits and pieces and tried to figure out all the different, what science has to say, but all these different little pieces that collectively make up a very unique individual cogitating human being. It's, it's a, a miracle of integration, and we haven't figured it out, but the science that is trying to figure it out is absolutely fascinating. I'm really excited about this interview, and I was really thrilled to get her book because when I was a newbie graduate student, I had the lofty goal of, you know, having my dissertation be 
the elucidation of the neural basis of the self. Um, and now, of course, it seems way, way, way too ambitious. Um, so instead, I studied autobiographical memory because I felt that that was a key to our identity. But, you know, she or she has taken a lot of the research about the self and really looked at it from multiple perspectives. And it, it really is very interesting. Yeah, you really wanted to take that on. You would have been the person saying trillions and trillions of you know, synapses. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. I mean, you know, it's just so interesting that we, we sort of this, this question of whether or not the self really exists is finally being asked. Um, for a long time, it was just taken for granted. So we really have made a lot of strides even in just redefining the question. Totally. Well, that will be our interview for today. But first, let's talk about some science in the news. And I guess there's a rather crucial scientific issue before the Supreme Court right now. Yeah. So on Monday, the Supreme Court justices were trying to figure out whether Florida was right in setting a standard in terms of the mental abilities of their death row inmates. So they were using essentially one number, and that is IQ or intelligence quotient, as a bar for whether or not an inmate should be executed. Um, so there's, you know, there's no question of whether or not the person is guilty. It's whether or not it's ethical to um, execute a person who is considered mentally disabled. And they used simply an IQ result as the standard of, of disability, which itself is very controversial. So the reason this is so controversial is not just because it's one measure, but because the IQ test itself, it's, it's hard for us to know exactly what it measures. Intelligence is a nebulous concept, and all neuroscientists and psychologists agree that, you know, the IQ test is just one measure of something that is far more complicated. So on the one hand, although I celebrate the fact that science is being used to, you know, um, to, to make policy decisions using one data point, essentially, for something as complex as IQ that the scientists really, you know, admit that is very complex, really seems much very mistaken. Yeah, uh, mistaken, uh, at minimum, I think you're maybe being kind. I mean, the science behind this case struck me. And I actually dug into the amicus briefs. And I found the one from the American Psychological Association and a lot of other scientific organizations. And it's written with the standard legal decorum. But if you read through the lines, I would say that they are pretty livid about what the state of Florida is up to. And I just want to read you a quote from this amicus brief. It is improper clinical practice to use only an IQ test score cutoff to assess general intellectual functioning or to make a determination that a person does not have an intellectual disability. And here we are again. Let me give you another quote. The decision to, quote, end the inquiry and preclude any evidence of limitations in adaptive functioning when a capital defendant scores above 70 on a standardized IQ test is the opposite of what is required by clinically accepted diagnostic methods. So this is kind of scandalous what Florida is doing. I mean, they are saying this is completely wrong. This is not what we do in our field. Yeah. And let me just say that, you know, even if the IQ test was a very accurate measure of intelligence, as most of us can agree, intelligence may be, there still is a huge standard of error around that cutoff, right? So the number 70 is in some ways a very arbitrary standard by which you can label someone as being mentally disabled. And in fact, you know, what there's, there's what they call five standard deviations. So whether the person has 75 or 65, you know, we say those people technically are not necessarily statistically different from each other in terms of their mental functioning. So just to say, you know, because this guy is a 71 or a 69, you know, we can make these life and death literally 
decisions is just really misplaced. Yeah, it sounds to me like, and I didn't know about this case until you pointed out to me, but it is the definition of bad science in a legal and criminal criminal context. It is not the only case, but it is sort of a definitional case. And it's and it's a really bad example of, you know, a misuse of a statistic, right? Because they're not taking in a, into account the standard deviation at all. So let's hope the Supreme Court can lend a little bit of sanity here. Uh, another another story that caught my eye this week. So a few years ago, Indre, I was I was bored and I did something dumb, which is I watched a terrible Val Kilmer movie called The Thaw. And what it's about is there's these scientists up in the Arctic and they inadvertently unleash a, a deadly killer plague because they unearth a frozen woolly mammoth that's been frozen for, you know, like forever. And it turns out the, the mammoth has these carnivorous insects inside of it, and they're still alive. And then, of course, they leap to the humans, and then apocalypse ensues, and then the punchline is, it's all because of global warming melting the ice, right, <laughs> that unleashed this plague. So this was bad science and bad entertainment. But it turns out that a new study has indeed found a bug recently exposed by the melting of northern permafrost. Now, this is not a flesh-eating insect. It is a microscopic virus, but it is 30,000 years old and it too is alive, or at least um, the scientists were able to get it to start eating things. Uh, it, it eats amoebas, not humans. But it is a, it is a so-called giant virus, and this is what all the headlines said, giant virus found. But what that means is just that it's as big as some bacteria. And it also has a structure that's not what we're used to from viruses. So it has very little DNA and a lot of empty space inside of it. And that's not what you expect of viruses. And it attacks in a different way. It replicates itself inside of the cytoplasm of the other cell rather than taking over its nucleus, which is what we expect from viruses. So this is a big scientific discovery. Uh, whether we're going to get new plagues from the melting Arctic is not exactly something that I think is very clear, but it does show that there is uh, frozen stuff that can be unleashed. Yeah, you know, it's so different from other viruses that it makes me wonder if we're not going to start a whole new branch of, you know, the species lists, listings here. It, it it really is kind of fascinating that we haven't discovered anything like this. And, you know, it kind of reminds me that there's this idea that there's so many species that we haven't discovered yet on Earth, which seems for most of us completely ludicrous. I mean, how could we how could there be any species that we haven't discovered given, you know, the size of the human population on Earth? Yeah, and just wait for uh, what we're going to be finding on the other planets. We're going to have to, because you know that it's it's coming, right? And so we're going to have to really, really start to think about some of these definitions differently. But um, not necessarily that this stuff is going to do us in, just that it is going to expand our knowledge. Yeah, and it, you know, it's it comes also at a time when people are starting to talk again about de-extinction, right? Bringing back animals that have been extinct, and uh, including things like the woolly mammoth. So I don't know, Chris. Maybe Val Kilmer's movie is going to be uh, prescient. Right. Okay. Yeah. Everyone is assigned to watch it and try to stay awake. <laughs> okay. So with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Jennifer Willette. Once again, we wanted to remind you that today's episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles that you can choose from on topics ranging from politics to classics. Basically, what Audible lets you do is listen to audiobooks whenever, wherever you want, from your iPad, from your iPhone, from your computer, wherever. And that's not all. Specifically for listeners to this episode of the show, Audible is offering you a free audiobook. You just have to go to this URL 
audiblepodcast.com slash inquiring minds. Again, audiblepodcast.com slash inquiring minds. And let me make some audible recommendations. So both of us, both of your hosts, actually have books or products on Audible. They've got my book, my latest book, The Republican Brain, and they have Indre's new series of lectures, 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. You can get those over there. They also have the book we're talking about on the show this week, Jennifer Willett's Me, Myself, and Why, Searching for the Science of Self. You just have to put it in the search field over at Audible, and you will be able to get it. So go on over to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds and get one of these free books. Jennifer Willett, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you. So you've written a book about the self. So the first question is, who are you? <laughs> That's an interesting question. You know, I'm Jennifer Willett. If you ask me who I am, I'm going to tell you various facts about myself. I might start with my job. I'm a science writer. If I might want a bit creative, I could say I also have a black belt in jiu-jitsu. I'm married to a physicist named Sean Carroll. If we get to know each other a little bit better, I'll start talking about my likes and dislikes. You'll get a sense of who I am. You know, if you really want to get deep, you might get a little bit about my political or religious uh, beliefs or things like that. We all have many, many layers to the self. And that was one of the biggest challenges, I think, in writing this book. How do you define self? And it really is an onion. And so what I kind of did was kind of peel back the layers and kind of broke it down into little bits and pieces and tried to figure out all the different what science has to say. But all these different little pieces that collectively make up a very unique individual cogitating human being. It's it's a, a miracle of integration, and we haven't figured it out, but the science that is trying to figure it out is absolutely fascinating. But this is super complex for you because there's two of you. Or at least <laughs> you have an avatar self that has a different personality. Yes. So you have to analyze that person too. Yes. My Twitter handle is Jean-Luc Picant, and the name comes from an avatar on my blog. Um, also my avatar in Second Life. And it's one of those things that started out as kind of a joke early on in my blog years, but she kind of took on a personality once, you, once I named her. You know, she ended up with a complete life story. She's got a middle name. She has an, a marriage to Crackle of Snap, Crackle and Pop, you know, that she denies after a wild weekend in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is a part of me that is in her. You know, she is an extension of me, albeit an extremely exaggerated version of me. Mm -hmm. So the self is not just our body. It can be extend beyond that it. was the most fascinating thing um, and, and that's not just a psychological thing uh, we really do bond with our avatars psychologically yes and I think we all know that we know that if something happens to our avatar in a virtual world it bugs us it bothers us um, we can actually feel emotional pain when we or, or physical shock um, I think that once in second life we accidentally stumbled upon a couple having sex my husband and I and we just kind of went oh oh quick quick get out get out we reacted as if we had actually stumbled on people having sex. So what does this say about the person who on Twitter is actually God? <laughs> the tweet of God? The I tweet follow, of God? Yeah, what does it say about that person? him. Self. Um, well, he certainly does have a God complex, doesn't he? <laughs> well, he has taken God. that. That person has taken on a persona, you know, so... That is something that we as human beings, I think, can do that, that is a little kind of, kind of unique to the species. Mm -hmm. So to write this book, you went through some experiences. You got your DNA, uh, at least partially sequenced, your brain scanned, you took a battery of personality tests. So you might have changed your identity by all the things you did to find out about your identity. <laughs> well, I think I certainly, yes, I think I probably did because we, we act, everything that we do changes 
who we think we are. And I think I ended up coming away with a much bigger appreciation for that aspect, for just how flexible and fluid um, and dynamic the self is. Um, we, we change all the time. And that that's kind of empowering because I, I think that sometimes we get caught up in things like genetic determinism. Um, genes are very, very important, and they certainly do impose constraints. But there there's also a very strong sense in which we have a lot of control over shaping how we are perceived and who we think we are. And that's one of the two, I guess I would say there's two big fundamental questions that the book raises, and I want to spend a lot of our time on them. So the first is what actually determines who you are and the role of genes and experience in that. The second is what does it mean to feel that there is a you that is <laughs> continuous, unified, has an essence, and is it really actually that at all? But let's go to the first one first. So That's this the is, easy one. <laughs> yeah, that, right. That, the first one is easier in some ways. So how much of your identity is rooted in your genes or how you were born versus your life experience? So first of all, you've already kind of gotten rid of it. I mean, can we say once and for all, nature and nurture, not a dichotomy. <laughs> Stop <laughs> dichotomizing. It's not either or. It's almost always both. Yes, I think we can say that for sure. There, there's nobody I talked to over the course of this book that disagreed with that statement. Okay. Unless it's one certain kind of genetic disease that... Right. Apparently, Huntington's, if you have that one genetic marker, you know, but th those are very rare cases. For the most time, for the most part, genes are actually very, very complicated. Height is a very obvious... Yeah. We, uh, easily... we don't know all the genes for height. We don't. But we know exactly. it's highly genetic. We, but we know it's highly genetic. Genetic, but there's there's like 15, 20 genes that we know of, and there's probably more that contribute to how mm -hmm. tall we are. So a good example of this kind of nature-nurture blend is personality, and you told us about your personality in yeah. the book. So you and I are very similar on a number of big fives. Uh, high openness, high conscientiousness. I don't know if that helps you be a writer, but I score on high on both of those. Yeah. We're different on other other ones <laughs> in ways that I won't tell you. <laughs> Are you a narcissist, Chris? <laughs> no, not narcissist, but I might be neurotic. So, um, you know, but this this is partly rooted in genes, but you can make it change. Um it's more you know, you you can retrain yourself. I was extremely shy. I mean, I, I think that w on, on terms of neuroticism that you said, I think as a child, I was, I probably would have scored much higher. I was painfully shy. I had a lot of anxiety. Nobody believes that when they meet me now, um, because I don't come off that way. And I don't think I am those things anymore. But I overcame that by constantly putting myself in situations where I would have to overcome that. Speaking in public, getting a black belt in jujitsu where I was, I had to get up in front yeah, of people and do things. You can't be shy for that. You cannot be shy for that. It actually helped me with my first radio interview right after my first book came out because it was terrifying. It was an hour long call and it was the very first time I'd been on radio and I just told myself, well, at least it's not just you in front of like a panel of black belts who are telling you you suck and dropping you for push-ups. No one's going to drop me for push-ups. <laughs> oh, I thought this was going to be an analogy between interviews and jujitsu, which I would have enjoyed. Um, it is a little <laughs> bit like that, you, you know. Back and forth. <laughs> there's a little bit of a back and forth, exactly. Um, there's a performance aspect to both of these things. Performance anxiety was a huge thing that I struggled with, and just by forcing yourself to confront that fear over and over again, gradually you lose that fear. So actually, you and I are similar on three of the big five then, yes. at least, because I'm, high, I'm highly introverted uh, and having to go out and speak in front of people made a big difference. But actually, I'm still socially introverted. It didn't change that aspect one bit. Just the, <laughs> just the like when I'm in front of people, suddenly some other beast emerges. But then when I'm like at a party, it's still the same little right. introvert. Right. I tend to find a little group of people at a party and talk to them. <laughs> so some, some things you change, some things you don't. You also learned about some other traits, um, including, you know, potential predispositions for various medical things mm -hmm. that 
you might have in your genes. So tell us about that was that. really interesting. It was the thing I was most interested in by getting my genotype done because I'm adopted and I've spent a lifetime answering medical history questions with, I don't know, um, because I don't. Um, I can't, I can give you my adoptive mother's medical history, but that's not going to help you any. So I, I was very interested in that. I took the 23andMe and that's been in the news, obviously. They're kind of yes. fighting with the FDA We're gonna have over to talk about the, how you feel about that. Over the definition ahead. of diagnostic. Right. We'll talk about that next. But, um, they're very careful, I found, uh, in, in their, in their results by at telling you that this basically does, is just gives you a little sense of what potential risk factors might be. I never had the sense that it was an oracle in any way. They actually linked to relevant papers. They ranked how valid the studies were, if they were preliminary or whether they were pretty robust with, with a high sample size. So that was very helpful to me. Um, ironically, you know, I, I, so now I know to watch out for things like age-related macular degeneration. Um, but I don't think I can take too much comfort in that. I, I was pleased to see that I'm not at high risk for things like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, but they don't really know what all the genes are that impact those. They just, and 23andMe only tests for a certain thing. So it helped a little bit, but it's it's not an oracle and it doesn't mean I will never get sick and die. We all die. Something's going to get me. Yes. <laughs> so, Statistically. Statistically, that's yes. going to happen. Well, so let's talk about 23andMe. I mean, you seem to think that it's good that people ought to be able to get this information, but what happened maybe after you finished the book um, is the FDA did step in and they, this is what I understand happened, significantly reined in what 23andMe can market. So now they're not giving health-related information, but they will give you your, your raw genetic information. They will tell you about your ancestry, but they won't say, you know, because you have this particular sequence, it might be the case that... It has this implication, even all their hedged language. So that they've been, they're not doing that anymore. You feel like right. they should be able to? Well, look, someone somewhere is going to be doing that. Mm -hmm. So I, my feeling on this, I, I actually really liked the 23andMe approach. Um, I didn't take it as a diagnostic at all, but I can see where other people might. In, in the same way that there are some people that prefer to know these things and other people who really don't want to know, you know, it's a choice. The day is coming when we will be able to get our entire genome done, um, not just the genotype, for like 100 bucks a pop. So it's going to be a conversation that we need to have. We might as well start having it now. I hope ultimately that's what comes out of this. I'm not anti-regulation. I'm not anti-23andMe. But we need to be having this conversation because this issue will keep coming up. How easily can you, as a reasonably intelligent person, take the genetic data and figure it out anyway? It's pretty complicated. You yeah. need a guidance. You, you need, need a genetic counselor. Okay. And maybe that's the answer. Maybe uh -huh. um, that that is one difference. Because I was a reporter, mm -hmm. I got a private genetic counseling session from like one of the company's people. Um, I had interviewed lots of geneticists. I kind of knew how genes worked. I was a little bit at an advantage over the average person that gets their genotype done. I mean, I think we need a more publicly accessible, annotated genome, don't we? Yeah, yes. <laughs> so anyway, that would sort of take it out. Well, of, and I, I yeah. agree with Anna Wojcicki, yeah. however, that this is something that she's does, the head of twenty. She's the head of twenty three me. That this is something that can empower people uh, to have a little bit more of their own medical information at their own fingertips. We do deal with very complicated medical information and conflicting information all the time when we make medical decisions. This is one more piece of the puzzle. What we have to avoid is people thinking that because it's genes, ooh, that therefore it's more deterministic than everything else. It's There's still a lot of open questions. So I want to talk about another um, aspect of how genetics shapes who we are, and that is proclivity, proclivity towards negative or destructive traits like 
neuroticism, depression, alcoholism, and let's talk about alcoholism. So <laughs> you you learned about drunken fruit flies and how that has some relationship to what we're learning about what causes people to be alcoholic. So in this research, male fruit flies who get rejected by female fruit flies drink more. Yes, they do. They're self-medicating. Right. <laughs> They're not getting that release, so, so they need the alcohol to help make up for it. <laughs> so besides being hilarious, what do we actually learn from this? <laughs> well, obviously, male fruit flies are not human. You know, A fruit fly model is not easily scaled up to human. It does give geneticists looking for human indications of genetic implications for alcoholism a clue as to where to look and the kinds of things that they should be looking for. Um, the fruit flies were hilarious. I basically just wanted to write about drunken fruit flies. Yep. They're hilarious to watch. Um, and uh, you can find these parallels because when they get drunk, they do act like you can, you can watch the stages. They get really happy and outgoing <laughs> and then they start to lose motor coordination and then they start hitting on other males by mistake and hitting on the wrong people. And they crash and then they suddenly the sidewalk gets really really comfortable and they crash oh, yeah. <laughs> so we've all had friends that that re went through those stages so um to me it was a way of kind of humanizing in a very humorous way uh what this kind of research was doing it does give you a hint again alcoholism is a behavior not a trait um so even though there are genes that contribute there's also, you know, how your brain is organized. There's personality traits. There's your home upbringing. There's peers, how you interact with your peers. All of these factors may or may not influence who becomes an alcoholic. So the answer to the question, are alcoholics born or made, is, yeah, it's a little bit of both. Um, and that's why I'm such a cheap date. For some reason, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not a party girl. I'm, I'm introverted. I had very controlling parents growing up. Um I'm my my I'm not impulsive in terms of my personality, detail oriented, conscientious, all of those things. So and I don't build up a tolerance. I don't drink enough to build up a tolerance. I still, after all these years, can really only have a couple of drinks and I'm done. <laughs> so genetics gives this window on the self, um, but it's a limited one. Um because of how, you know, we don't even know what all the genetic information means. The brain you know, the science of the brain obviously is another area that you look at closely. And you talk about in the book specific brain regions that are associated with identity in terms of recognizing ourselves in the mirror, feeling that we're in our own body. There's a brain region for that. There is. Right? <laughs> uh, feeling that your body begins and ends somewhere, recognizing where you are in space. So we're actually learning how the brain is constructing all these synths. Sensation. Right, right. And that's an interesting thing. The self is a construct, and I don't think we really think of that. Even our physical self is a little, you know, it exists, obviously, but how we process it and how we experience it is constructed by our brain. And it can be deconstructed. Um, as, as, you know, a later chapter, I think I dropped acid and you get disembodied. The, the acid actually messes with those parts of the brain, you know, that, that ability to distinguish between self and other. The other interesting thing about the brain chapter is that it was basically a null result. I had a brain scan done, an fMRI, um, as part of a study in David Eagleman's lab. And you know, it's very nice to get a picture of your brain, but really all it can tell you is you don't have a brain tumor and your sinuses are very clear. Because your personality is more than just that moment. It's more than just that one static image. Right. So, And, and you talk about what it might be, but the problem is the complexity here is so massive. There's this concept of the connectome, right. which is the sum total of the brain's connections, which is some number that we're not going to pronounce here because it would take up <laughs> too much time on the show to give the number. <laughs> so um, one scientist you talk to says the connectome is where nature meets nurture. Uh, we do have a connectome for a very simple organism. So uh, the nematode, the nematode, the little tiny 
Is it microscopic? Yes, yeah. yes, it is. It is. You know, it's interesting. When you talk to neuroscientists, you get people on either end of the spectrum and you get a lot of them kind of congregating on some kind of middle ground. Um, the connectome is related to Joseph Ledoux's notion 10 years ago of the synaptic self. You are your synapses, how the brain gets wired up through your experiences, through your genes, all these things. And it's constantly changing. I think that's very true. How do you map that? That's a whole nother problem. It took them 10 years just to get the nematode, and the, and the nematode only has 302 neurons um, with all those connections. Um, it took us a long time just to do the genome, and what we found after we mapped the genome was that it was far more complicated, and I, I suspect that the same thing is going to happen if we manage ever It's like map mapping a mountain of spaghetti or something. It's like right. figuring it out every... <laughs> the way someone described it to me was it gives you a great map of New York City, but it doesn't tell you what the traffic is uh, at any given time. Mm -hmm. So... That doesn't mean it's not useful. Maps are very, very useful, but we need to kind of scale back on our expectations of what mapping the connectome might mean. So let's talk about this question of, as I'll describe it, is there a you in there? <laughs> so in light of all this, why assume there is a self at all? Last year, New Scientist magazine did a feature package calling the self a great illusion right. constructed by the mind. And they debunked a number of things that we tend to think about our identities. They debunked the idea that yourself is unchanging and continuous, that it is, is the unifier of your experiences, that it has agency. I mean, and so there's a lot of reasons to debunk this, but I'll just give one. I mean, before you came here for this interview, I drank coffee and I ate chocolate because I was feeling exhausted. <laughs> and, I, and I knew that I would do better in the interview if I just chemically altered myself through sugar and caffeine. And so my listeners, I don't know what self the, the listeners are going to hear. They'll think it's Chris Mooney, but it's Chris Mooney altered. It's not like there's a continuous Chris Mooney. There's always these, these blips and changes. Right. Now, the self is pretty flexible and dynamic, as I said. It can expand, it can, extract, can contract, it can, it can be lots of different things. It was very interesting. This actually gets back to that infamous acid trip. Even though it messed with my body maps, there was still a sense of an eye. So my question, my, uh, my question to all the neuroscientists is what is this eye? A psychologist, I think, called it the militant eye and didn't really get a terrifically satisfactory answer. I will say that I don't like the term the self is an illusion. Mm -hmm. I know that's kind of the big buzzword and the cool thing to call it right now. I think that's a little misleading. Um, it's a construct. But it's real. And the reason I say it's real is that, it, is that it's emergent. Um, consciousness, basic wakefulness, we know is an emergent property. It's something that comes out of the interaction of all these billions of neurons that we have. Um, out of that, this property arises. Um, a traffic jam is emergent. You have all these cars interacting. If it gets dense enough and enough interactions, you're going to get a traffic jam. But that traffic jam is real in the same way that a group of atoms in a, a piece of gold, the gold, the chunk, as a whole, has temperature, it has brittleness, it has all these properties that are not inherent in the atoms themselves. They're emergent. So it's not right to say it's an illusion, but it is a construct. But it's it is not what you think it is. But it's not what you think it is. <laughs> How about that? And I think it's important yeah. to pay attention to those nuances. It's a little too easy to just say, eh, the self is an yeah. illusion. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good headline. So let's talk about some of the things that make it not what you think it is. In terms of identity and agencies, this is some of the research that from your book and elsewhere I found out. You can obviously make us trick our memories. You can make us believe we made choices we didn't make. Inception is easy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you can make us remember doing things we didn't do. 
Uh, you can make us think we're having out-of-body experiences, make us think we're in the body of a mannequin. You wrote about another one. Make us think that a rubber hand on the table is our hand. Absolutely. Uh, that, that that tells you right there how flexible the self is and, right. and just, you know. That's you can, me over there. <laughs> <laughs> you can mess yeah. with it. You know, the brain can be messed with. Um, and, and we're getting better and better at figuring out why those things happen. Um, and that raises some very interesting philosophical questions. Um, I think you mentioned the question of agency. I did not actually cover free will in my book, in part because when I talked to people, they, went, oh, book. they just went, oh, God, don't go there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that I take a, for lack of a better word, accommodationist kind of view, which is that surely if like Laplace's demon, we had all that knowledge, if we knew like the position and velocity of every single subatomic particle, we could have, we, we would not have any free will that is deterministic. But we don't. And so we behave as if we are making decisions. Also, a lot of those subroutines, a lot of the the, um, the neuroscientist argument for lack of free will is that a lot of the subroutines that are going on that you're not consciously aware of are making the decision long before uh, you are consciously aware of making a choice. Right. It's still you making the decision. Even if it's not, even if it's, even if it hasn't filtered up to the conscious level, so that's a a little bit of a fine uh, a fine point that I, I tend to grab onto. Um, I'm okay with uh, again. I don't like the word illusion. I'm okay with it saying that there's a lot more to making a choice than we realize. But going through our daily lives, we must act as if we have free will and agency, and therefore we do. Well, the self and free will are kind of in the same boat, aren't they? I mean, yes, they are. They both feel real, but behind them is definitely not um, what we think. Exactly. But, uh, but we have to go around thinking they're real. because and, there, and there's some sense physical in which they are being created by our brains. And if you really want to get wacky, you can say, what do we mean by real? What makes something real? Um, uh, that's too wacky. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what makes a traffic jam real? <laughs> so one more thing that makes this such a thorny, naughty issue is then... A lot of yourself, as you think about it, is your memory, and your memory is can be very messed up. So, so just some research on that. Different cultures retain different memories. They make different things in people's lives seem important. So people in China were, according to one summary I read, found to remember more historical and social events that everybody knew about, and Westerners were more about remembering individual things that impacted only them. Interesting. So- our memories make us, but our memories are contingent. And of course, we create many false memories and events that happen after the supposed memories affect what we think happened in the memories. Right. And it was there's an interesting reason why that happens. I talked to uh, some psychologists at uh, Washington University in St. Louis, uh, Henry Rodiger and his wife. And uh, they, Henry Rodiger basically just said, every time we remember something, we are rebuilding it. We're not actually remembering what happened. We're remembering what happened the last time we remembered it. And as a result, we embellish. Little bits and details get changed. I mean, the basic facts or the outline or the arc might be the, might be identical. But the facts, you know, we're going to add some stuff. So I think that I use the example of Mike Daisy, who gave that infamous NPR uh, performance piece uh, on the Apple batteries. Um, he created a compelling story. And it was based, in fact, and it was mostly fact that he embellished. This is about Apple, the company. Yeah, and, and the, chi the Chinese, Chinese factories, exactly. Factories and it was what based, was going on yeah, It there. was based on his theater performance piece. And in theater, that's perfectly appropriate. That's what you're doing is performance. Turns out that's actually what we all do anyway. You know, it, it, it's performance. I mean, we are creating a story. We're creating a personal narrative. Um, and it's it's more akin to myth than memoir. 
Um, you know, I think Jonathan Gottschall, who wrote the Storytelling Animals, say, uh, quote, had a quote somewhere where he said, every memoir should come with a disclaimer based in fact. Even though we think it's the truth, it's our truth. It's, it's the story that we tell about what happened to us. And we believe it to be true. But if you went back and checked every single fact, someone else telling the same story would tell it differently. And chances are we'd find that we weren't exactly correct. So how much is all of this that we're saying? The self is definitely not what we think it is uh, or what we feel it is. How much does this freak people out or not? I mean, it's not like there's a big public controversy about this. It's not like evolution where everyone's like, oh, no, <laughs> no. Somehow, somehow this mostly slips by. Is it because people aren't aware of it or is it because they just you know, shrug? I, d I, I don't know. I mean, I, I expected people to object a little bit more to my take on what happens to your conscious self after you die, because I basically say there is no soul, or rather your soul is this conscious thing that is emergent. And once all that activity that leads to the emergent phenomenon disappears, so does that. It's gone. Um, I know there's at least one philosopher, David Chalmers, who uh, thinks that might not be correct, that there might be a different kind of emergence. It's weak versus strong emergence. But he's in the minority. Based on the science, I don't think we can say that. I expected more people to be upset by that. And maybe they just haven't got that far in the book. Right. Well, but your position is the obvious one. The self comes out of the brain. Right. So mind it is stops matter. with the brain. No matter, no mind. Right. I mean, I don't see how... You just personally, I don't see how you get around that when it seems like a kind of obvious one. Well, you have to say if there's something beyond your mind yeah. that is yourself, what is that? You know, what what is that made of? The I things mean, that we carried. I mean, it's yeah. objects and memories right. that other people have of you. Right. I mean, there, certainly those things. That will live on. Right. Uh, actually, Neil Tyson gave a wonderful talk at a celebration of Carl Sagan recently when he said, "What are, what is a person other than the impact they had on other people. And he said, that's what Sagan's impact was. And so he's still alive. I think that was his argument. Right. And it's actually think, kind of a touching argument. Well, and I think that's true. This is something that uh, my husband and Sean Carroll and I actually talk about quite a bit, you know, because we hear this from all the time from people who say, how can you be an atheist? It's just such a bleak worldview. You know, how can you possibly be good, motivated to be good if, if there's no afterlife? And we basically just point out that it, because our human lives are so finite because the self disappears after death. Um, that makes what we do so much more important. It makes everything we do matter. It makes our relationships matter more. It means that we're far more reluctant to hurt someone if we can help it. Um, so I don't actually, you know, buy that argument at all. Mm -hmm. So let's let's turn future word a little bit. Okay. So what struck me about the book is that so much of the self knowledge that you obtained is relying upon new technology like sequencing genomes or using avatars <laughs> or uh, obviously brain scans, all of these things can be expected to sort of get better naturally. So does this mean that future people are going to know themselves better than we currently know ourselves? I guess it depends on what you mean by know themselves. Certainly we'll be able to measure and calculate to unprecedented accuracy what's going on in our bodies. I guess my question, you know, we, we'd be, we'll get a much clearer read of the genome. We might be able to get a connectome. We might be able to get even better ways of, of measuring personality traits. Mm -hmm. But all those things just kind of point a microscope at, at a certain part. So I, I guess we have to ask, you know, what does it mean to know yourself? You can know little bits and pieces of yourself, and those things can inform who you think you are. But ultimately, you know, it's it's who you are and how you move through life and your interaction with other people, that give and take that shapes who you are. So 
your self-knowledge is really dependent on how open you are to that give and take. Does and that make sense? Yeah, sure. But what is what is your take then on the uh, the brain download people? I mean, the people who want the self someday to be so well known and understood that it's reproducible, I take it. So in other words, it, it can be turned into data and then put in some other place and will right. still be there. Well, you know, it's a great idea. Look, I loved Dollhouse, uh, the series. So I'm, I'm a huge Joss Whedon fan. Yeah. It's a wonderful idea. I personally love my body. I, I would always want there to be some kind of body. Mm -hmm. um, but and if I, you can trick it, if you can trick the brain so easily, you can probably... <laughs> possibly. Yeah. Possibly yes. you could. Exactly. Every neuroscientist that I talked to, um, and some of them were some very big names indeed, we're extremely pessimistic about having that happen anytime in the next 50 to 100 years. And I know Ray Kurzweil is saying 2044 or something like that. We'll be lucky to get Seems it. Seems weird to put a number on it. it. I don't think you can put a number on it. It's a great idea. I think it vastly underestimates how complicated this problem of consciousness is. Um, we have not even come close to figuring out what's known as the hard problem in consciousness. Um, we know a little bit about wakefulness, about what it means to be awake versus unconscious, like say under anesthesia. We don't know anything about how that self persists and how that, that meta self, the cogitating thing that has thoughts and feelings. We don't know anything about that. You can always, I think, represent a greater and greater, a more and more accurate, more believable facsimile of yourself through computer technology. We're already moving in that direction. That's certainly going to get better and better and better. Will it actually be you? I'm not convinced. Yeah. And when you think about it, even if it gets pretty good, you ask yourself, are you going to feel confident that it's you? Yeah. <laughs> well, the answer I, is no. I, 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 I find it very beauty. hard to believe. That was the beauty of Dollhouse. You know, there, there was a lot of people complained about the I science. actually watched the show. It didn't last very long. No, it did not. And it was uneven. But I, I loved how they really got into the nitty gritty of exploring identity. And what does it mean to have all these different people in you? And it drives some of them nuts, as it should. Mm -hmm. So you've been through this whole process of examining yourself probably more closely than a lot of people do. What is the benefit to a person of doing that? You know, uh, I just think you understand a little bit more about why you do the things you do. I mean, one of the reasons that I wrote this book, I got interested in this when I wrote my other book, The Calculus Diaries, which I also spoke to you about long ago. Um, I was very much, a, you know, a math phobe. Uh, part of my identity was that I was bad at math and math phobic and hated the sight of equations. In the course of writing that book, I went back and looked at my high school transcripts and I got A's in all my math classes. Where did I get this idea that I was bad at math? That was something that shaped my decisions and shaped the course of my life in ways that I couldn't even predict. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying the better you know yourself and why you make decisions and why you hold certain opinions or beliefs... I think you're you're more tolerant of other people. I think you understand when, when once you understand where those things come from, you can defend them a little bit more uh, strongly. Or you can not do them. Or you cannot do them. So not, there, I'm doing that again, and that's I'm doing the thing that, that again. I do because well, you know, I don't know because I know I'm introverted or, I know, or whatever. Exactly. Or I I know that you know I should step back from this because I clearly have a cognitive bias at play here that's blinding me to what might be the truth. That actually happened while I was writing this book. Um, that this the chapter on gender and sexuality really was very difficult for me. It was difficult for some of my test readers. You know, we have the you know it pushes a lot of our buttons, um, but you got to follow the science and be honest. Well, 
on that note, uh, Jennifer, it's been great to learn a little bit more about yourself and oh, hopefully <laughs> hopefully others will uh, read the book and, and learn even more about Excellent. how they can figure out about themselves. And they should. I love this topic. I mean, she's exactly right that it is like an onion and there's so many layers to think about. And it's sort of this conversation brought up two things that I think are, are really quite relevant. One harkens back to the interview we did last week with, with Edward Frankel and this idea that we don't actually know that we're not in some kind of a simulation, right? Um, which I think is always mind bending and fascinating to think about. But the other topic that I've always really enjoyed is this idea that our sense of self actually extends beyond our body. Um, and New York Times science writer Sandy Blakesley wrote a great book about this, about, you know, our sort of body image uh, a number of years ago. And the idea that, for example, when you drive a car, that your sense of your own self actually extends over time, once you're comfortable with the car, to the outside of the car. So, you know, we have two cars. We have a smart car, which is tiny, uh, and a bigger car now that we have a baby. And I have to say that it is really wild at how quickly, you know, my body image extends and changes in differently in those two cars. Right. And one of the key points of the book and the interview, Jennifer, brings up is that with the internet and with things like Second Life, you, you can extend yourself in ways that you were never able to extend yourself before. So keeping keeping track of you just became a lot more complicated. Yeah, and you guys talked about Dollhouse, but there's also one of my favorite uh, sci-fi series, which is Caprica, you know, which is the idea that if we go into a virtual world, like, will we actually know that that our virtual self is different from... Sorry, my, my baby just sneezed. Would we actually know that our virtual self is really different from our real world self? And, you know, how, how meaningful is that distinction going to be um, if we ever get to a point where we live in a virtual world and our bodies are just sort of vehicles for, I don't know, meta metabolism? And meanwhile, when are we going to get a series uh, that, unlike Dollhouse and Caprica, is not canceled, <laughs> that actually focuses <laughs> on the self? So what do you, let me ask you, seriously... Uh, this central issue, she describes the self as an emergent property of all the activities of the brain. And so, you know, the, the strong case that there isn't a self that I associated in the interview with New Scientist magazine, because they've just run a big sort of feature about this, she, she rejects because she's, you know, in, in effect, you can find all these manipulations that you can do to the brain, experiments that, you know, read, really radically redefine the self like the the rubber rubber hand experiment where you can trick someone into thinking a rubber hand is your hand just by not letting you see your real hand. So, I mean, do you agree that we should not throw it out entirely, but we should go for this kind of emergence kind of perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's still a useful construct to, you know, look at different behaviors through this idea, this notion of the self. Um, but certainly we need to rethink it of it. We, we, need to, we need to think about it as something that has a lot of layers or is made up of different systems or changes over time. I mean, we've talked about that on this show in a number of ways. One way you might remember when we talked about at the New Year's show about how, you know, when we go through different milestones in time, we actually redefine ourselves um, just in terms of how we remember if there's if there's some kind of a temporal post, right, a sort of a, a timestamp. Um, but there's also this idea, you know, that that it, it's an emergent property and that it only is there like the refrigerator light or like somehow some people describe consciousness um, when we search for it. So, you know, the, the analogy to the refrigerator light is, you know, it it's always on when you open the door, but when you close the door, presumably it's off. We don't know whether it's on or off because we can't observe it with the door closed. It's the same thing with our consciousness or with the sense of self is that, you know, we only really observe 
observe it when we're looking for it? So is it there when we're not looking for it? I mean, these are these are the big questions of consciousness. And, you know, it's great that she's asking them. And, and what I love about her book is that it doesn't just focus on, you know, one subtype of psychology or neuroscience or whatever. She goes from genetics to, you know, personality to, and all over the place. It's really fascinating. Uh, it's a great read. And it's really really timely to ask this question. And what I also took away is that, you know, science is going to be advancing pretty rapidly on both of these fronts, not just of figuring out what the self is, but also empowering you to figure out about yourself. Uh, so this is something that we're going to have to watch a lot on this show and just generally. Absolutely. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Please remember that this show is sponsored by Audible.com and they're offering you a free audiobook. So again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash Inquiring Minds for your free book download. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.